Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this week. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to tune in every week as we continue to unpack, I believe, some glorious, glorious principles from the book of Romans as we begin to look into the gospel, what the gospel is. The Apostle Paul said, remember in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel really works. I'm just not sure we've really ever heard the gospel in its purest form, because what we do many times is what Paul admonished us not to, and that's to mix law and grace. And what we've done over the past, we are concluding chapter 3, getting ready to launch into chapter 4 of the book of Romans as we begin to move from the diagnosis to the deliverance. Now, I'm going to review a little bit in this program because I think it's vitally important. What Paul does in Romans 1 and 2 is indicts the outsiders, the idolaters, and the Gentiles, what you would, the heathen, if you would, anything outside of the Jewish community that would be the called in the Message Bible the insiders. And what he does is he begins to unfold how that even when they did not have holy writ such as the Jews, that when they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. But he begins to declare to them that even they had never heard, so to speak, that even the things that were created by God plainly declare His eternal Godhead so that they were without excuse. And so he begins to indict everything and everybody as he begins to tell them that the law of God was already written in their hearts, that the Jews which do not have the law, Romans 2 says, did by nature the things that were written in the law, and they show that uh, they were a law unto themselves. But what happened is that he goes on to say that when they knew God, they would not glorify Him as God, but worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator. I believe our worship is important because what we adore in worship, we want to become like. And so, you know, worship is more than just a lip service. It is a, you know, it's kind of like a son who admires and almost worships his father. He wants to grow up to be like his father. And But I'm not sure we've really seen the image of God as clearly as God wants to unveil it through this book of Romans, because we start seeing God as different from this vicious, austere old man on a Victorian chair who is trying to enforce his rules so strenuously that you can't have relationship with him. But what he does in chapters number one and chapter two is he indicts everything and everybody. He doesn't just pick out the pet sins that we like to identify and condemn those people. He includes all kinds of stuff in that. Now let me just say this quickly before we move on into this, that you say, well, I'd really like to go back and listen to, uh, man, what you said prior to this. Well, we have a whole playlist on our YouTube channel. All you got to do is go back and, and, and look at those. You can also get the audio portions on our podcast or the audio portions on an RSS feed. And the easiest way to do that is go to my website at lynnhiles.com. In the upper right-hand corner, there are icons that you can click 
that will take you directly to it. If you sign up for them, you will be notified every time we upload a new program, and we do that every week after we air it on this program. Now, let me just say to you, you might want to go ahead and do that, because I may at some point pull some of the content from our YouTube channel and use it in a school setting. And if we do that, it will no longer be available just on the YouTube channel. So you may want to take advantage of that while you still can. And we encourage you to use them in uh, Bible study classes and, and etc. That's a powerful way to use that too. Now, after he indicts every everybody that is an outsider in chapter 2, then he begins to turn on the Jews. And he begins to say, listen, you know, you guys who have been insiders, who have had the covenants of promise, you've had the oracles of God, you've had all these great heroes of faith, and you have been exclusively a part of a covenant that was exclusive to you. Now God has done something much bigger. He's drawn a bigger circle, and He's included both Jew and Gentile. And I love how the Message Bible words this, uh, as you come, he says, but it goes on to say, but we are all in the same sinking boat. He says, verse number nine, so where does that put us? Do we Jews get a better break than the others? Not really, because basically all of us, whether insiders or outsiders, start out in an identical condition, which is to say that we all start out as sinners. Scripture leaves no doubt about it. There's nobody living right, not even one, nobody who knows the score, nobody alert for God. They've all taken the wrong turn. They've all wandered down blind alleys. No one's living right. I can't find a single one. King James says there's none righteous. No, not even one. Their throats are gaping graves. Their tongues slick as mudslides. Every word they speak is tinged with poison. They open their mouths and pollute the air. They race for the honor of Center of the Year. Isn't that true today so much? Insider, outsider. It's almost like the more evil you are, the more you get celebrated. And it's almost like, like they race for Center of the Year. Litter the land with heartbreak and ruin. Don't know the first thing about living with others. They never give God the time of day. This makes it clear, doesn't it, that whatever is written in these scriptures is not what God says about others but to us to whom these scriptures were addressed in the first place. So he's talking to now, he shifted from just the outsiders to the insiders, the religious folks. And he's saying it makes it clear what's written in these scriptures was not just about others, but to us to whom the scriptures were addressed in the first place. And it's clear enough, isn't it, that we're sinners, every one of us, in the same sinking boat with everybody else. Our involvement with God's revelation doesn't put us right with God. What it does is forces us to face our complicity in everyone else's sin. See, this is so healthy for me to get to the place where we realize, I don't care who you are, whether you've been to church your whole life. I think sometimes it's easier to get people delivered from self-righteous religion than it is to get delivered from drugs. I made a statement in jesting, but I think it's probably true. In one of my recent meetings, I said, I'm a recovering Pharisee. And I think we may have to start some religion rehab centers because people would rather fight than switch, and it's hard to shift. But you know, even when you drop your judgmental attitude towards others, it starts to release you 
from the judgmentalness that you put on yourself. You know something I've noticed over my many years of being in the ministry is usually if preachers are harping on a certain sin and they're constantly up on their high horse about something and they're preaching against a particular thing, usually that's the sin that's in their life and they just figure, well, if I preach it hard enough, I'll keep other people from getting involved in this sin. But what that does is it just simply shows me exactly what the Scripture is saying, that He concludes all under sin. It forces us to, uh, to, to face our complicity in everyone else's sin. And we may not all have the same ones. We may struggle with different things. But the bottom line is He puts us in this place where we realize we're all in the sinking boat, same sinking boat. We all start out in the same place, and that is we need a Savior. See, the law was designed not to make you righteous, because the end of the law, there's none righteous, no, not one, but to define and to show how far man had fallen from what God had purposed for our lives. And I probably, I might ought to say this as well. You know, when God gave the law, when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, He bought them out on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant. And this is kind of giving me a little setup to go into the fourth chapter in our next segment where we're going to talk about Abraham. But God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant. I was reading it last night, or this morning actually, in uh, Genesis probably chapter 15 through about 18, that God uh, was, was making Abraham a promise that your seed is going to bless the nations, plural, of the earth. That seed we find in Galatians chapter 3, that seed was Christ. And what he was alluding to is the fact that out of the loins of Abraham was going to come a Savior who would be a Savior to both Jew and Gentile, that all the nations, plural, of the earth would be blessed by him. And God brought the children of Israel out on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant and that, that covenant only required faith. And Abraham, we'll see this in the next chapter, believed God. And his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith without the works of the law, because the law had not been given. And so when the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt. They were brought out on the basis of the promise that God made to Abraham. And He even tells them, He even tells Abraham, your seed is going to go down into a land that is not theirs for 400 years. But when they come out, they're going to come out with 400 years worth of back pay. You're going to spoil the Egyptians. And He did that because He made a promise to Abraham that he would raise up a deliverer who would deliver them from the bondage of Egypt. I think it's a great pattern of the spiritual exodus. Don't want to chase this rabbit right now, but the spiritual exodus that God was bringing us out of in the New Testament. Because in Revelation, the 11th chapter, in verse number 8, it says, and their dead bodies, which I believe are symbolic of the law and the prophets, because they have the power to shut the heavens that it rain not during the days of their prophecy, that would be Elijah, and to smite the earth as often as they would with plagues, that would be Moses. So he's talking about the law and the prophets. He said, their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called, watch this, Revelation 11 verse 8, 
which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Our Lord was not crucified in Sodom or Egypt. Our Lord was crucified in Jerusalem, the centerpiece of Old Covenant Judaism. And while there is a movement to go back to that, I hear the words of the Apostle Paul saying, do not go back, but look unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. So there's another exodus that's afoot, bringing us out, and he's trying to return us to a covenant of faith, because as Galatians talks about, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And we will see faith righteousness in the next chapter. But watch this. When the children of Israel left Egypt, they were delivered by the blood of a lamb. In the new covenant, you and I are delivered by the blood of the spotless lamb of God. It's not an accident that Jesus eats the Passover the night before His decease. And interestingly enough, the word decease, where Moses and Elijah spoke to Him of His decease, is the Greek word exodus. So what it should have screamed when Jesus sat down at the table with them to eat the Passover is, this is the beginning of a new exodus, because the next day they were going to sacrifice the ultimate Lamb of God, and they would never have to sacrifice another woolly lamb again. And Jesus gives them that sop, and uh, you know He's reminding them of an exodus. And I think that is so incredibly powerful. And so another exodus is afoot. And what I want you to see then is as they come across, they've been delivered by the blood as they leave Egypt, they come out into the wilderness, and uh, they are between the Red Sea and Egypt, and the thump of horses' hooves come, and the dust of Pharaoh's chariots, and they begin to pursue them. They are between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. And uh, God says to Moses, tell the people to stand still and see the salvation of God, because they've already been delivered by blood. Now they're going to be delivered by water, and He's going to baptize three million people into the sea. In the rite of the new covenant, said so they were baptized into Moses, into the sea. So it's a picture of being blood-bought and water-baptized. And he tells Moses to tell the people to go forward. And I believe the reality of it is, is God saying that to us again today. Tell the people to go forward, because in the going forward, you are going to leave your enemy behind. When you go forward in Christ, whether... Listen, if you're listening to me today for the first time, and you've never received by faith the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ, that His death was your death, receive it today, and you will begin an exodus out of whatever you're in bondage to. And when you come to the Red Sea and you come to water baptism, the water baptism is significant because it is declaring a death over who you were in Adam, and that baptism buries an old man, and he says to them, the Egyptians which you see today you will see them again no more forever. I believe water baptism in the New Covenant also signifies the fact that we are no longer in bondage to, as I shared before, Egypt, not just being the world, but an Old Covenant paradigm where under the Old Covenant we are slaves and servants, but in the New Covenant we are sons and heirs. And so as they cross the Red Sea, uh, they are at the foot of Mount Sinai. This is not an accident to me. The children of Israel did a lot of stuff from the time they left Egypt until they crossed the Red Sea. And God doesn't rain down fire from heaven. No judgment comes. There's not any uh, repercussions for the kind of their murmurings and all the stuff that they do. But they come to the foot of Mount Sinai, 
and they have been brought out. Now, this is to me very, very significant. They are brought out on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, which only requires that you believe faith. Abraham believed God. We'll see that as we get into chapter 4. And it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, righteousness is given as a free gift, but we access this grace by faith. In other words, we believe into righteousness. Where the heart man believes into righteousness with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So what happens here is they cross the Red Sea, and God, I can see God being excited because He says, I'm going to make them a whole nation of priests. Everybody, from the least to the greatest, are going to have access to me. I'm going to make a nation of priests uh, out, of this, out of this Jewish people. They're going to be to me a, a people, and I'm going to be to them a God. And I can see God excited because He's going to have relationship with these people. As they cross the Red Sea, they come to the foot of Mount Sinai, and God is going to call the people up to the mountain, but first He's going to call Moses up. When God descends on the mountain, He tells the people at this point to stand back, and His glory comes down on the mountain. God meets with Moses, and when He meets with Moses, so terrible was the sight that the children of Israel, Deuteronomy 5 is the backstory to this. God was inviting them into a covenant that was one-sided. That was the Abrahamic covenant. God says, I'm blessing, I'm going to bless you, and multiplying, I'm going to multiply you, and all you have to do is simply receive by faith, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. But the Scripture tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that the law was added because of a transgression. I believe that that transgression was not only Adam's transgression, but it was the fact that they transgressed the Abrahamic covenant, which required faith. And they asked God for a covenant that was based on works. Because the moment the people saw God come down on the mountain, He wanted to make them a whole nation of priests. Deuteronomy 5 is the backstory. God said, I saw you in your tents when you said, we're afraid of Him, Moses. You go talk to Him, and whatever He says to you, we will do it. And if we do it, it will be our righteousness. Wrong answer. And the people forfeited that kind of a covenant based on faith for a two-sided covenant that says, if you do this, then we will do that. Because the moment you forfeit a personal relationship with God for a rule-based system, or the moment you, you forfeit any kind of a personal relationship with God, you've got to have rules. Because without rules, Without relationship, you have to have rules. And the more you lack in relationship, the more rules you have to have. And thus, hence religion came, and this law was added as an addendum, the Scripture says, until, until, that's a time word, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And that seed, he tells us in Galatians 3, was Christ, who would include both Jew and Gentile, everybody that's in the same sinking boat, because God wants to bring us back. And the Scripture tells us in uh, Hebrews number 12, I believe it is, that uh, you did not come to Mount Sinai. You did not come to fear and trembling. You did not come to a God who says, 
If you touch the edge of the mountain, you will be thrust through with a dart. So fearful was the sight that even Moses said, I exceedingly fear and tremble. That mountain was Mount Sinai. That was in Arabia where the law was given. And the moment God gives the law, faith shuts down. It's interesting to me that when you go into Romans, uh, not, not Romans, I'm sorry, Hebrews, the 11th chapter, it says, by faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, he feared not the wrath of the king. By faith, he kept the Passover. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea. And he talks about everything that happened by faith. Remember, it was the Abrahamic covenant coming out of Egypt. By faith, he kept the Passover. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea. By faith, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures that were in Egypt. But the moment, it says, by faith they crossed the Red Sea, but the moment they cross the Red Sea, nothing makes it into the book of Hebrews that happened by faith. And that's the last thing it says about Moses in Hebrews 11, by faith they crossed the Red Sea. I said, God, why does nothing make it into the great hall of faith that happened by faith after Hebrews 11, where they crossed the Red Sea. He said to me, it's because at they crossed the Red Sea at the foot of Mount Sinai. When I gave the law, when the law comes, Galatians 3 says, the law shuts up faith, for the law is not of faith. See, it doesn't take any faith for, uh, for, for you to, to believe maybe for uh, some things, but sometimes it takes some faith to believe into righteousness because you don't see anything. You, you, you can't see into the invisible. See, I have a harder time believing I'm the righteousness of God than I do believe God can help me make a house payment. But see, what God wants to do is restore a faith in righteousness, and that's what we're going to shift to as we come into this fourth chapter of Romans, is that by faith Abraham believed God, and God counted his faith as righteousness. God counted him believing as if he had kept every rule, because in the new covenant we are believing into Christ, because what we could not do on our own, as we saw in Galatians, Romans chapter 3, is God did it for us. He set us right with Himself on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to set things right with Him on the basis of the fact that Jesus did it all right. So faith does not kick back in. Nothing happens in the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11 after Mount Sinai, because once the law is given, faith shuts down. In other words, the more you preach law, condemnation, and guilt, the less people believe. As a matter of fact, what they used to do every Sunday morning was preach such legalism that it talked me out of my faith to even believe I was saved. And so I got saved every Sunday morning, or so I thought I did. I got saved every Sunday morning, and sometimes would give them a midweek courtesy dip, because by the time they get done naming sin, I didn't believe I was saved anymore. I literally sat in church and became an unbeliever. And after a while, I thought, you know what? I love God, but He doesn't love me, and I'm probably going to die and go to hell. And if I'm going to die and go to hell, at least I'm going to enjoy the ride. And I left church because 
what was being preached shut up my faith. I wonder what would have happened if they would have started telling me every Sunday morning after that, you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. See, what God wanted to do is restore back to the believer in the new covenant what was robbed from them in the old covenant because God was offering the nation of Israel to make them a nation of priests where everybody would have access to God without a mediator system. But Peter grabs a hold of that in one of his epistles, and he says, but you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. So God brings us all the way around back full circle and puts us back in right relationship with Him so that we can have this relationship without a go-between, without a mediator, so that I don't care who you are today, you have as much access to God the Father as I do. I'm not any different than you are. God loves you just as much as He loves me, and your prayers can reach heaven just as much as mine can, and He restores the priesthood of the believer. But what would happen if we preached that? What would happen if we taught people, you are a new creature in Christ. These are holy hands. Wherefore, holy brethren, Paul would write, partakers of the divine nature. People at first would look at you like, what rock did you crawl out from underneath of? Which I reply, the rock that is higher than I. The rock of ages is the rock I crawled out from underneath of. And I'm going to preach that kind of a gospel until people become a believer. Because preaching the law shuts up faith it makes an unbeliever out of you. But when you preach the truth of who you are in Christ, it makes believers out of you, and the just will live by faith. In other words, you will act on what you truly believe about you. And sometimes you've got to hear it over and over and over again until you become a believer so strong in the faith that nobody can shake you from your security in knowing that I am who God says I am. And I love how, you know, I've heard Joe Osteen say this before, this is my Bible. I am who it says I am. I can do what it says I can do, and I can have what it says I can have. And isn't it amazing that it seems like Jesus handpicked the people we thought were disqualified under the old covenant to show us that, come on, He would heal sinners, He would heal lepers, He would heal Mary Magdalene, who was, whom, whom, whom He cast seven devils out of, and the moment He does, she follows Him all the way to the tomb, and is one of the first ones to celebrate His resurrection. Oh, what I'm trying to do is preach a gospel that says, insiders, outsiders, He's concluded us all under sin, but we have now access to this grace by faith, and this grand setting everything right that Jesus did for us, so that as we open the next segment, we're going to talk about the faith of Abraham and how he believed God. It was counted for righteousness. But we're out of time on this segment, so we pray that you join us again next week at the same time. We do need your help if you'd like to sow a seed into this ministry. Uh, we, we do need your help. And the easiest way to do that is simply go to my website, and there is a place where you can give via credit card or debit card or PayPal. All of that is right there used through a secure way to give through our paper. You can also sign up for a monthly debit if you'd like to become a monthly partner and automatically be done, or a one-time gift. You can also send a check or a money order to the address that will come up on the screen, or you can call the number that's on the screen. Someone will take your call. If you don't get an answer, please call, uh, leave your message, and we will call you back as we have a limited team. So do it today. We need your help. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. 
I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.